Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. First up, this is probably the last week, maybe the last two weeks, um, where my Varieties of Church Experience survey will be live. So if you haven't taken that, you can follow the link in the show notes to take it. Also, I really do still need conservative and Catholic voices. I mean, I need a lot of things. I need people of color. You know, the listenership to this show uh, is not a diverse rainbow of God's kingdom. Put it that way. But we are getting uh, some really good, really good data. And there's going to be some very interesting conclusions that can come from it. So, yeah, if you've got someone in mind that you think might take it or if you'd still like to take it yourself, go ahead. I also have one correction. I, I'm going to start trying to do this little little corrections when I've been wrong about things before episodes. Yeah, I think it's important to admit when we get things wrong. But I want to start off with one that someone else got wrong that I think is kind of funny, but maybe worth saying a little bit about. So 
uh, one of an, an old family friend of mine who is my parents' age listens to the podcast regularly. I'm very grateful, and she will sometimes email me and encourage me. I got a text from her son, who is one of my friends growing up, and he said that she loves it. She listens weekly, but she says that as the podcast goes on, you guys get really drunk and start to say the F word a lot. And I just want to be clear. I I do think it's probably true that I say the F word more in the second half of the show or later in episodes, but it is not because I'm drinking. I don't drink when I record these interviews unless it is like a funny you know, like the Enneagram episode or something where a bunch of my friends are on and we're having fun. Normally, I don't drink anything. And a lot of theology podcasts do involve drinking. In fact, when I go, when I'm a guest on those podcasts, I'll drink. And when I go on, for instance, Trip's podcast, Homebrew Christianity, I'll usually drink. He's drinking on that show, but I don't actually drink for this show. So in case you didn't know that. Now to today, um, two days ago, the Senate voted once again, not to convict Donald Trump, uh, this time for inciting insurrection on January 6th. For those of us who were keeping up with the news, that came as no surprise. But many of us were surprised back on January 6th to see so many Christian signs and symbols involved in that mob. And one element that helps explain that convergence is a propensity to believe conspiracy theories And that comes up a bit in today's episode. It was the focus, of course, of an episode a few weeks back. And I'll be having a conversation soon um, around some recent polling that sheds some more light on that issue. But another explanatory factor is Christian nationalism. And this is one of the main focuses of my chat today with David Cassidy. David is a pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, in the Presbyterian Church of America denomination. Now, this is the same denomination as the church my wife and I attended for 10 years and which ended up being too conservative for us, and we left. So David and I definitely disagree on plenty theologically, but man, do I respect the hell out of him for the way that he is publicly calling out his own community uh, and and basically connected communities and, and even being um, contrite himself over this issue. So I don't want to say too much else. I'll let him say it. Let's get into it with David Cassidy. David Cassidy, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, You wrote and organized this incredible tweet thread, and it seems like you put a great deal of thought into it. So I'm going to basically follow the outline of your tweet thread, which starts with diagnosis and ends in treatment. And, you know, as we both know, these days there is so much trauma and bewilderment that many of us who were raised in the white evangelical church are working through that it's so tempting to merely criticize. And there is a lot to criticize, and we are going to do a lot of criticizing today, but then we will also turn to a possible treatment, an alternative way that the church can be, not just the white evangelical church, but any church for that matter. And so we're going to kind of follow that order of things, and that is what made me most excited to talk to you is that, of course, I think you get your diagnosis right to the extent that I'm any kind of authority on that. Um, But I got really excited by the treatment, basically. Uh, Well, well, Dan, thanks, first of all, for having me on. And I appreciate what you're saying. And it is easy to criticize. But I want to be really clear that for me, this is an internal critique. I'm a white evangelical Christian leader. 
And if I look back at my own personal story, I think I was a participant in constructing some of the scaffolding, at least, for the way in which various responses have been uh, built over the years. And so when I'm looking at things, I'm saying, well, we have to own our stuff. And that means we lead with repentance. I think one of the things Christian leaders can do is lead with repentance and confessing our own issues and asking for forgiveness, leading the way in that. And then offering as well the, 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 the truth that God's merciful and kind. There is redemption. And um, this can lead to better days. It's going to take a long time to rebuild credibility in some areas, but God helping us, we'll get well, and there. What's, and what's the other option? Giving up? I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> it's actually just really cathartic already to hear someone say, I'm a white evangelical pastor and I recognize my role in some of this. Like, yeah, there is such a culture of doubling down and tripling down. And I'm sure we'll get into this because I – a big question for me is how much of that existed before Trump and how much did tr- did Trump by his very nature as a person sort of force a doubling and tripling down because he was so egregiously outside the norms that yeah. basically you, you, you got to – you have to shit or get off the pot. You have to like go all in or you have to go all out. He doesn't really leave room like a George W. Bush does – for, you know, well, I agree with this. and I disagree with that. Like that doesn't really roll in Trump's world. President Trump was someone who viewed any opposition to his position or to himself as something which was intolerable. Yeah. And so that's always dangerous for any leader, obviously, in any context. But if you take that into very high levels of leadership, it can be deeply, deeply dangerous to the institutions that we rely on. And for people who want to support particular positions, it puts them in a difficult spot when it comes to how they can be supportive. So I know plenty of people who were certainly unhappy with his personal behavior and the way in which he conducted himself and so on, but he was certainly closer to where they were from a position standpoint. Yeah. And so they felt issues. Yeah. Yeah. They felt, well, I can look past these issues and because I care more about these other things. And okay, I kind of get the I I got the argument they were trying to make, but it got a little strange when they started to import Bible verses into it. And, you know, as a kind of defense, defensive posture for explaining where they were going with it. Yeah. Necessary. But that's what happened. So. Uh, before we actually get into this thread of yours, I, I have this question that like I kind of need some clarity on it before I can go further, which is uh, that like how can you get away with in it to use the one language? You're you're a pastor in Florida, is that right? I'm about to move to Florida. I'm currently serving in Tennessee, uh, okay. in Franklin, Tennessee, at Christ Community Church. That's right, Franklin, Tennessee. Yeah. Well, same difference for what I'm talking about. It's the <laughs> South. So how do you like? There is a real market issue here for a lot of pastors of these evangelical churches who are basically choosing between speaking their conscience and losing their jobs or at least putting their jobs in danger or being more quiet on this and maintaining their jobs, providing for their family. I, I think that generally speaking, it's wrong to lie to your congregation to keep your job, but I very much 
do, I wouldn't want to be in their position. And I, from a, as a personal thing, I really empathize with that very difficult spot. What's so special about you, David, that you can just speak your mind in an evangelical context and not get fired? Well, I I don't know there's anything special at all. I think there's a posture of how we approach people who are leaders in the political realm that has to be borne in mind. In my view, and I've had this view for years, this is not new, my chief job is to pray for people in, um, in positions of government, whether they're local or state or federal. And, um, and that's been my position. I lived overseas for eight years. And so a lot of my thinking is, has been shaped by global friendships. I don't think just nationally or locally or whatever, just in terms of the United States, try to think kingdom. And I think where I've served, I've tried to inculcate that way of approaching our work as a church, that we are in Christ And in Ephesus, we all have our own Ephesus to, we have our own neighbors, our own cities, but we're exile people. And, and uh, so we pray for the king and his sons, as it says in, Uh in uh, Jeremiah, and we care for our city and we love our neighbors as we're commanded to do. And that includes people who are in positions of responsibility, even when we disagree with them. Um, So I live in a deeply red area. I have relatives that are certainly very conservative and would, were, would, would be um, very outspoken about that. That's fine. But what I, my job as a pastor is to do is not to pursue an American agenda or even to be primarily concerned with this nation's state. Right. This is one of the fundamental problems. And we've tried to teach people through this, which is um, the task of the church is not to um, fulfill of anybody's political agenda, but rather to proclaim Christ to people. And and we're going to make, you know, um, I think one of the tweets I had was, um, you know, it's the, the mission of the church is not to make America great again, but to make Jesus known to everybody everywhere. That's true. Right. I mean, that's like, the, the, but where I'm coming from is that's kind of obviously true. And yes. yet even, even when someone like Greg Boyd, who's sold, I, if I'm guessing, hundreds of thousands of books, yeah. Once when he did his big sermon series 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was at Woodland Hills yeah. uh, about militarism, he lost half his church. So like yeah. some I don't know if you maybe like the social science way of saying it is like you have been training your congregants to expect this from you for some yeah. time. So they weren't surprised or yeah. I'm kind of wondering, like, can we get a little brass taxi about because, yeah, sure. so, you know, it's a real problem. For <laughs> I think people. that's part of it. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is the way congregations have trained me. Uh, as well. So when well, I was, a you pastor, sir have gotten lucky with your congregation. Yeah, I have, you know, I've been with some great people. Like yeah. when I was in, I was a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Austin, Texas for okay. many years. Wait, is this related to Redeemer in New York with Tim Keller? Same name, like same denomination, but okay, PCA. PCA. Yeah. But uh, one of the members there was Ben Sass. Right. Uh, before the Ben Sass was Ben Sass. Ben was teaching at the uh, University of Texas Law uh, School of Government. Yeah. Uh, before he went to work in HUD in the Bush administration. I did some work when I was a pastor in Kentucky, helping with um, political stuff there. I managed to campaign for someone. Uh, so uh, that's why I say I have, I've had some yeah. some work in the field as well. And But the people I've talked to over the years, and here I'm one of our members is David David and Nancy French. Uh, David oh, is, David the, goes uh, to your church? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this, I'm a huge church. I'm a huge David French guy. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Yeah. So David and Nancy are neighbors, 
and members of this church, and they're very dear friends. And so what, what happens is there's a conversation that takes place among people about how do we as Christians love our country well and properly, yeah, but supremely love the Lord Jesus and seek first the kingdom? What does that look like? And so those conversations right. are ones we've been deeply engaged in here. I don't know that other congregations have had deep engagement on those issues. And by Clearly, the way, Clearly, most of them have not. No. <laughs> I mean, the and numbers think, are bad. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm far be it for me to tell somebody like Greg Boyd how to do things, but I don't think you do stuff by sermons. Well, I mean, he also was writing, you know, he's, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. He's author of so many books and, and a remarkable leader in his own right. Um, but, but I wouldn't, for instance, stand up and do a big series here on, on these kinds of issues. What I would do oh, is we went through discipleship and what we, our men's intensives and various classes yeah. talk about how do we treat each other? How do we approach each other? Vast majority of our, our folks here uh, are conservative people. A great many of them, I'm sure, voted for Donald Trump in the last yeah. election. Probably others voted for write-in candidates. Still others voted for uh, now President Biden. There have been across the board, but what we've tried to teach people is respect for each other in the matter of conscience, yeah. which is a great Reformation principle, which has largely been lost. And I'm yeah. very, very bothered about that. Luther said, "Here, it's not, it's not safe to go against Scripture or conscience at the Diet of Worms. And that whole issue of conscience seems to have been lost by a great many people who are the heirs of the Reformation. And they, yes. they tend to trample on people's conscience and say, well, if you're a good Christian, uh, this, is, this is what you do. This is how you do it. Pastors endorsing yeah. candidates and that kind of thing. It's really, really... Um, improper and it's disrespectful and it takes us again away from our main mission and it's an eclipse of christ in the culture and it's it's very unhelpful yeah i'll just just in passing i'll just note that one of the issues that i'm interested in in the field of spiritual abuse uh Mm -hmm. one one particular form is this kind of gaslighting people about their yeah. intuitions and their conscience and yeah. and saying, well, no, 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 you you feel that moral obligation or whatever, but here's what this verse says. And so this trumps whatever's going on in your heart. But let's let's get started on this uh, yeah. on this topic so that we can get through it all. So you you start out w- with a little history. You start out with Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, <laughs> um, yeah. and these guys um, are familiar to listeners of this show because I did uh, two multi-part series on end times stuff. I did a uh, right. a big one around mental health with people roughly my age, and then I did another shorter one with baby boomers about with with people who became Christians during the Jesus movement and were really yeah. into that stuff. Yeah, uh, my my friend's dad lived on a Christian commune and met his wife there. Yeah. And all, all this stuff. So uh, I've I've touched on that ground, but how you're you're saying that they they basically brought about this end of the world mania that's really common, and that this mania laid the foundation for conspiracy theories. So can you say a bit more about in your mind the relationship between an sure. apocalyptic focus an over focus maybe? And yeah. conspiracy theories. It it seems to us like that should be related, but it's not clear to me how it's related. Well, uh, and I haven't written a, a dissertation on this. Okay, so it's an observation made by by uh, pastoral care. Sure. Great. Okay, as opposed to sort of scholarly analysis. Of course, apocalyptic mania 
predates Hal Lindsey. I mean, this that's not new. So sure. when he came out with Late Great Planet Earth, it was just the latest iteration of what had been around for a while. And people, of course, have been panicked by apocalyptic visions in American evangelicalism for many, many years, going back to the great disappointment that led to Adventism and so on. But I, I like probably some of the people you talked to in my early teen years, you know, oh, here's here's this book. And, and um, one of the things that's important to note about uh, that apocalypticism is a deep, deep mistrust in institutions. Yes. And, inst- and whether those are ecclesiastical institutions, uh, the way a chick track would sort of portray a church, and uh, especially a liberal church, and... Um, and the way that apocalyptic writers would tend to view civil government. So civil government is always, you know, shown to be a beast, a beast which is a dangerous opponent to the church and is going to rise up and persecute the God's people. And this is coming. It's not that there was a beast in the book of Revelation in the first century who was opposing the Christian church. I mean, my own view of the book of Revelation is that that refers a whole lot more to either Nero or Domitian right. than it does to some future Fuhrer that's coming Same. on the scene. Yeah, okay. So, but so what you're but out in this of that way, apoc- it's, it's used to, it's coming. That doesn't that's talk right. about Nero. This guy is on its way. That's right. So if there's this future beast that's coming, then you're always kind of looking over your shoulder at the way in which a civil government can be viewed as demonized. And now, I'm not saying that there's an absolute connection between I had that view of eschatology or somebody has that view of eschatology, so they make the jump immediately over sure. to, well, the Obama administration. Yeah, is it's Obama, beast, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. That must have been a secret Quran he had his hand <laughs> on. Right. But, but what, what happens is people have this very dark view a very unsound yes. view of the role of the civil government, whether it's at the federal level or whatever. We're, of course, as Americans, predisposed to be very deeply suspicious of an overreach by federal officials. In That's any the case. whole idea. Yeah. That's how we got started. That's how we got here. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> we we kind of are predisposed to that anyway. But, but, that, the, but that original, the forming of America was during a time when like deism was very popular, right? Yes. It was yes. not a world flush with angels and demons. It was actually a world where most of the intellectual Christians of the day were like, well, God set the watch up and started it running, but God's not really up to much else. Now, that's probably not true of a lot of, for instance, the pilgrims and the early settlers who were often uh, pietist Christians and and a lot more, um, you know, supernatural in that sense. But in terms of like yeah, so th- there is some tension there, whereas deism is, is very out of fashion now. I think what they had was a – as deist was at least a realistic view of humankind, which mm. is we – there was a kind of uh, – if I, if I could say, a kind of almost Calvinistic view of, 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 of humankind, which is we do have some darkness built in, and yeah. we will make a mess of things left to our own devices, and so limitations have to be in place. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, that's true, uh, of course, yeah. So I think they had that. And I think Madison being um, instructed as he was by Witherspoon certainly understood that. And some of what gets built into the constitutional scene flows from his experience. Yes, but but it's so interesting because it's the similar thing with the sciences where 
also with the sciences, you have people saying, look, humans are selfish. They're going to want to inflate their findings for their own gain. And so yeah. here in this system, it, it's basically a fundamental agreement with a Christian anthropology. That, that's exactly uh, in correct. Sinful nature. And yet what, what I'm raised in by the 1990s, not so much by my parents, but by certainly at my evangelical junior high and high school, is that – Actually, all these institutions, government, science, these things that are that actually agree with us and have these things in place, those are not to be trusted. And rather here, check out these parallel institutions. We have our own creation science and these and these ones actually don't have any of the safeguards that the regular science don't have any of the safeguards. And charlatans just make a living traveling around to Christian high schools peddling bullshit and getting paid for it by people who want to hear what they have to sell. Well, and you run into this in today with uh, at the other end of the sort of speaking spectrum with prophets yes. going around often, you know, here's these prophecies we're making about the outcome of the election. And, and then of course, you, you know, when those things don't come to pass, I was asked <laughs> by a, um, a, a, another Christian leader, Hey, what are they going to do when all this stuff doesn't really happen? I said, Oh, wait for it. There's a whole, there's a whole way of, of justifying why those prophecies yeah. were conditional and all this stuff. But this is not taking into account the kind of deep brokenness that is in the human heart. Yeah. And, and that's unfortunate. So, um, but the apocalypticism of those people simply laid a foundation for deep mistrust in civil institutions, very negative view of civil institutions, yeah. particularly vis-a-vis the church. And um, so the church is always under threat. And really, that combined with a group that had an exact opposite eschatology, which was Reconstructionism, post-millennial Reconstructionism, which said, well, basically, we're going to rebuild the society along theocratic lines, according to God's law. Yeah. And so in order to do that, we have to get the right people in positions of authority, uh, uh, in, in, in whether it's a legislative branch, but especially the judicial branch. So we got to pass the right laws, put the right people in place that will defend those laws and so on, and basically create a kind of Christian society that is marked by, particularly for really strict reconstructionists like R.J. Rushdoony and others, the uh, a vision of Israel's civil law being our normal law. Um, wow. Most Christians don't don't buy no, it. Not quite that. there. Yeah, they don't want the they don't want the old covenant. They don't want people. Uh, they don't want menstruation outside a camp. No, but what <laughs> they don't understand is that the roots of a lot of what's happened politically, in you know, are uh, this odd marriage of these two ways of viewing the end. Yeah. And yeah, so that's yeah. really interesting. You 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 said something interesting there. So you've got the the premillennial apocalyptic folks. The, mm-hmm. the Tim LaHaye's and whatever. And yeah. then you've got the Christian reconstructionists who are basically amillennial. We are going to usher in the kingdom by, in a civil way, bringing about a theocratic state of yeah. God ruling. So they actually, they technically really disagree about how things end, but they have, <laughs> but the anxieties of the one and yeah. the anxieties of the other are the same yes. on That's the ground. Correct. Right? That's correct. And so you had people like, I mean, I'll just, I'm, I'm, I'm I'll just pick on somebody, or you pick many, somebody like Jerry Falwell in the 1980s, who would have been more from a premillennial dispensational background, 
taking on the challenge of, well, we got to save America. We have to Christianize America. We have to push back against the darkness. Yeah. So it, there's some, there's some inconsistency in the idea that really what he would have espoused from a technical theological standpoint would have been the rapture. Let's get out of here to now. Well, we're going to reclaim and re and, and, and make society. We're going to Christianize it. Yeah. So, um, that okay. oh, that, so a, that put them in a position where they became a political constituency, right? For po- po- politicos who wanted to get that group of people on board, it start. And I mean, the Democrats did it with Jimmy Carter in 1976. It's not a uniquely mm-hmm. Republican thing, right? Carter comes on the scene as I'm an, I'm born again. Born I'm an again evangelical, Christian. right? Tons of evangelicals supported Jimmy Carter in '76. Right. And I talked to older people who said, you know, we saw him as the kind of Christian guy who's going to lead the country and save the country. By 1980, of course, they were very deeply disillusioned with that notion and went the other direction. Right. But there you go. Okay. There's two things about that that are really interesting. One is the angle of like how much people really believe the rapture. Yeah. And that is that like, and I always wanted to do this. This is more of a thought experiment than something that I would do because it would be unethical. <laughs> But I've always wanted to like go to around to churches and preach this really convincing numerology, the end is coming any day now thing, get people all riled up. And then at the very end say, and we've got real estate agents and we've got some accountants from Edward Jones in the back and they're going to help you start liquidating those assets that you won't need anymore because Christ is coming and then have people balk and then tell them that it was all a a performance art basically to get at the point, the idea that like people don't actually live their lives as if the rapture is coming at any minute. And so that's interesting because it's such an important in that world. It is such a focal point and it's such a in-group identifier but it's yeah. not lived out. And so maybe this kind of like Christian restoration movement of actually we we bring this about ourselves makes a lot more sense at a day-to-day level for one of these believers because it, yeah. it's not focusing so much on the end coming any minute. It does. Well, and it's it, – to be frank, I mean if, if you're if – you're, you know, when, when Lindsay – published late great planet earth he would sort of you know he'd couch everything hey i'm not i'm not saying that jesus is coming back in 1988 he would never write a sentence like that but he would say he would say well you know the trigger for all this is israel becoming a nation right and uh that happened in 19 you know 45 and they're they come back now biblical generation is 40 years it all has to happen in one generation and so you know it was 19 1948 so 1988 is the is the outside end of the world. And of course you got a pre-tribulation rapture that's seven years. So 1981, well, if you're in high school in 1978, you're not really thinking grad school, right? You know, I'm going to go get a, a postdoc because we're all going to be out of here. So the, the vision of a post-millennial societal renewal is something which appealed to people, particularly in intellectual realms who said, well, I'm, I, I mean, here we have a vision of society and of the stewardship of gifts and so on, that makes a lot more sense, actually. And so I can I can do that. Well, I actually agree that we should be stewarding gifts. Right. And whether it's in the arts or sciences, we should be serving others as best we can with whatever abilities God's given us in small ways, in whatever faithful ways we can wherever we live. And um, always, always living for Christ 
coming for us, always with a view to him and us standing before him. It's not uh, uh, to be tied up in a political vision. You don't bring the kingdom by politics. And that's the jump that was made. It, it went from service and the stewardship of various gifts to imposing on a country because of a misunderstanding of the use of the Bible's term nations to, you know, a sort of post-enlightenment nation-state view, to to saying, well, well, what we want is this political kingdom. And it's so odd to me, you know, Don, because for years you hear people say, Jesus showed up and he, he wasn't bringing a militaristic kingdom. He wasn't bringing a political kingdom. He was bringing a kingdom of grace and renewal. So exactly how people who actually say those things and believe those things then jump to, but the kingdom now is militaristic and political is very odd, but it grew. It didn't just make a jump. It really, it really uh, kind of grew into that. Well, you know, earlier I said that the anxieties of these two groups yeah. aligned, even if their view of the end didn't align. That's um, I have one other idea of how that is, how that might be the case. So for the Christian reconstructionists, their job, they believe that the calling of the church is to enact this Christian theocracy on earth. And so that's their that's their job. That uh, they're they're just fulfilling God's command to bring that here, and then that gives them their lives purpose and meaning. For the uh, apocalyptic mania folks, uh, what you often find is a sense that the end is imminent, but the nations will be judged, like you're talking about. Now it's nation yeah. political modern nation states with constitutions yeah, will be yeah. judged by basically how loyal they were to God, how faithful they were to God. Mm-hmm. So even though the end is coming soon and it's not coming later, like the reconstructionists think, nonetheless, while we're here in this brief time, we need to basically appease God as much as possible. And so our job is to Christianize America as much as we can, even though we know we'll never get there because things are going to get worse and worse and worse. I'm, I'm filling out other parts of yeah, their yeah, yeah. worldview, sure. but that's our job. And so you find as long as those people don't talk about how it all goes down, ultimately, they're right. going to basically think that they're completely in league. And from a political yeah. perspective, they are perfect bedfellows. They're going to want all the same policies, all that stuff. Absolutely. That's that's exactly correct. That's the that's where the two meet. And it's why it forms such a potent political force. Yes. I mean, if I'm just working in political strategy. I look at that and go, well, this is a community of people that we could certainly we this is a large community of people. We would want them to be on our side. How do right. we appeal to them? So, yeah, I mean, right. all of that, that has nothing to do with President Trump per se or any other Republican mm-hmm. candidate. That's just from a purely political strategy. That's what you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't uh, you can't blame the political strategists for doing their jobs. You have no. to blame the community no. itself for being gullible and, and yeah. really, I guess, for leaders, whatever. There's all kinds of things to blame. Well, but, again, I, I, and I would start with me. I love that you start with you, David. That (laughs) excites me and energizes me. I have a question. You know, I get to be lead jackass in this thing. If uh, going back years and years and years ago and and saying, uh, I think I was as caught up in some of that as anybody else. And um, can we can we talk about that time? If to the extent that you are able to can can you go back into your psychological motivations, your fears and your desires. Was it, you know, was it anxiety? Was it, 
misplaced genuine hope and love for God and God's people? I mean, what do you, what was the what were the active sort of psychological ingredients when you were drinking more of this Kool-Aid? Well, I think the first thing was a misguided hope. I was very I was young, you know, I'm 19, 18, 19 years of age and I'm being exposed to these new ideas. I'd, I'd turned my back on dispensational premillennialism. And so really it was all about the coming of the kingdom. So what does the coming of the kingdom look like? I moved to England when I was 19, but I was reading a lot of literature by, you know, thinkers in reformed theology and they, they were fairly broad, but the idea of how does the church manifest the kingdom in society? And, and, um, I think it was very much a misplaced hope. Hmm. And what Schaefer had taught, Francis Schaefer was a real key figure in my life. And I, I still cherish that engagement. I think he had many, many good things to say. But he was saying, okay, how do you get involved in art? How do you stay involved in politics, in the academy, and so on? This kind of Kuyperian worldview where Jesus is Lord over everything. And instead of Christians isolating and pulling back, we're engaging with the world. Right. I didn't think through what proper engagement meant. I didn't have a real good foundation in common grace in, in the way God gives gifts and beauty to all people and to us by all people and how we as uh, what our posture should be. So then I started hanging out with people really who, frankly, their vision of the coming of the kingdom was domination. And they were reacting against assimilation, and, and I was reacting against escapism. So I'd gone from escape, you know, to dominate. We have to take over. We're taking over for Jesus, you know, and um, because that's what that would make the world a better place. So if the kingdom comes, then the laws of the land, which are contrary to God, those laws are abolished and, and so on. And you begin thinking that way. And then anything other than that is assimilation. It's capitulation to the spirit of the age. So it has to be fought and resisted. Well, that us versus them dynamic then becomes very, very unsettling. And um, you begin to feel a conflict in your own soul about, wait a minute, how do I love people that I'm hating so much? Yeah, so this is the turn where it gets interesting for me, because if I can put myself back in, let's say, 1978, pre-Reagan, you know, in the middle of the Carter administration, I could very much imagine if I were 37 then and, yeah. you know, the kind of intellectually curious person I am today, I could see myself going, huh, you know, there's a real – we've been through Vietnam. We've, we're in the, coming out of a big recession. You know, we're, we're still in the Cold War. There's really a lot of uh, opportunity here for politically engaged citizens who care about the common good of their fellow man yeah. – to, yes. to do some work. Like I can put myself there in that time yeah. where before the two tribes are so calcified. Right. What's so interesting is that eventually we get to a place like now where the tribes are so calcified that basically you have one side who, because of gay marriage and mostly abortion or whatever, are willing to basically turn off their spiritual radar for like literally any other issue that affects the common good, Im like a sensible immigration policy, right. care for the creation, 
you know, colonialism and and just basically enslaving poor people around the world. Like, you know, the list goes on and on. And and I don't think the Democrats have a lock on these moral issues, by the way. And and I am one of these rare just like you are a rare white evangelical who can get away with criticizing Trump. I'm a rare basically pro-life Democrat and a well, couple other things and pro-religious liberty. And, and let me let me be clear what I'm criticizing. I'm not really I'm, what I'm what I'm wanting to offer a critique of is not a candidate or an office holder, but the church itself. Well, sure. But it, you could anybody paying attention can fill in the gaps oh, of how much sure. the church has failed that with yeah. Trump. Yeah. So but and it predates that it predates that. Oh, totally. I mean, he ends, up, I, he ends yeah. up being the um, kind of ultimate sign of where this was going. But oh, I, I agree. You know, he, yeah. But he's, with. It, but He's one of history's Nixon, greatest morality tales. I mean, it's just insane on the biggest stage. I mean, it, it's yeah. literally it's priceless in that sense from yeah. like a historical literal liter, literary perspective. I just mean to say we've we found ourselves pushing against the the tribalism, both of us in slightly yep. different ways. And yeah, and that's right. That's right. David French is also one of those people, and that's why I value him <laughs> so much, even though I'm to his left on so many yeah, policy sure. issues, right? And actually. Sure. I'm I'm quite to his left theologically, but I just f-ing love the guy for standing up for saying he is, uh, what he believes. You know, Dave's a very courageous soul, and, and I, I'm glad to count him as a friend. That's for sure. But I mean, I think you are too. To to whatever I don't know your work as well as I know his work, but to the extent that your bedfellows like this is all the same idea. That's right. But, but le- less than you know, fluffing ourselves for our courage. I'm more <laughs> trying to get at like what's what happened there. So 78. You could yeah. have these beliefs, but it's not calcified yet, and it's yeah. not clear which issues are going to be the ones that people will die on the hill. I can recognize you roughly in that time period getting excited right. about that. That's and, right. And yet I – and then I come to today, and that period is no longer recognizable. We're not in that period anymore. That's right. It's a very different world. So I think a couple of things. Number one, the issue of abortion, the protection of the unborn became a kind of critical – issue. Um, certainly uh, Francis Schaeffer, evangelical leaders like Malcolm Muggeridge from a Catholic tradition or John Stott from an evangelical position, uh, Anglican position, Francis Schaeffer from a more traditional evangelical position, Protestant position in the U.S., were all saying how we treat other human beings, the weak, the vulnerable, and so on, is a critical issue. And so we should be having a voice for the voiceless and so on. And of course, that that's not something I would disagree with. I do think we have a responsibility to the weak, the vulnerable, the the, the marginalized, the outcast, the voiceless, and so yeah. on. I was living in England, however, uh, from 79 to 87. So the economic aspects of all of this or the foreign policy aspects of everything that began to form had a very different trajectory for me. You were kind of um, shielded from that, actually. That's right. Some way. So I could pick up the one one point and go, okay, yeah, human beings as image bearers of God, how we treat, whether somebody is a refugee or um, right. um, uh, somebody who is pre-born or somebody who's elderly. Uh, I was just going to throw – I was just going to make that. Like the, uh, the, the people who we are to protect include the unborn, also refugees, also old people who exactly. – some of society would like to kind of euthanize and get them out of the way, right? There's a, that's right. Christian social teaching typically would say, well, we got to ask some very important questions here about what, what, why we believe what about human beings, what we believe. Yes, yes. And, and so here I am in Britain, and I'm with people in a church 
who are Christian socialists. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, they're labor, they're labor party members. When somebody, somebody recently said to me, um, I was a Marxist because I was friends with Tim Keller, who's a Marxist. And I was like, Whoa, I've got, I've like, I've been with actual <laughs> Marxists and I am going to tell you, Tim Keller, who I know is not a Marxist, not a Marxist, neither am I. And I have Marxist friends who would tell you, who would laugh at the, at the presumption of yeah. the assertion. So, so I, I mean, I, I've, I've got friends who across the border are Christians, and this is part of the problem is that all over the world, we're part of this global community. But again, here's the next step in that kingdom issue. Then the kingdom became what's going on in the United States. Hmm. Again, there's some natural things we have going on with our way of thinking as Americans yes. contributes to that. Like yeah. our world news is really all about us, our yeah. world. But if you live overseas or you have relationship with people overseas and you're influenced by a more global perspective and you have authentic Catholicity growing in your soul, then you begin to have a deep appreciation for the fact that this kingdom is a really big kingdom. Yeah. And um, right. people have a lot of different views in it. So people can be sometimes really quite shocked to meet, say, someone who is, say, from Scotland, right, who would – Amen. Down the line, the Westminster Confession as a Presbyterian elder. Right. But he's a member of the Labor Party and he's a socialist. Right. <laughs> and so it's yeah. kind of fun for a conservative from America well, who well, meets that person yeah. goes, whoa, wait a minute. What just happened to my world? Yes. But that's because that's everything the, has collapsed into the two identities here correct. in the States. Correct. And just going to a different country, even where they still speak English. Yeah. Ru- ruins that for you. It really, really will mess with your your world if you drifted into that. So what we have now is Christian nationalism, and um, that's a reduction of the kingdom to the United States. It's a reduction mm. of um, the United States and what it offers as a constitutional republic uh, in terms of liberty of conscience to people. And the confusion on both of those ends is hurtful to institutions like our civil government and institutions like the church. And so stepping back from those in ways is critical for us right now. So the upcoming patron episode that will come out this week is with Jared Pogue, and he has actually started a therapy practice based in Georgia that is focused specifically on people who have gone through faith deconstruction. And so I talked to them for a while. We heard his story of deconstruction, how it intersected with his wife's story, and then how he got to starting this practice. And uh, we talk about, you know, kind of what his thinking is behind how he frames that practice uh, and a little bit about what clients say and, you know, It's just, it's the kind of thing that obviously I was interested in once I saw that he was doing that and he was gracious enough to talk with me about it. So if you want to hear that or any previous patron exclusive episodes, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes. It's $5 a month unless you can't afford that, in which case there is a sliding scale and you can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. If that's the case, you also get access to the patron only Facebook group which has become a great community. All right, back to the episode. So to bring this back to your analysis from the tweet thread, yeah, how do we get from that 1978 position that I was talking about 
to the moment where actually the person disagreeing with you is not just the other party. Yeah. Or like I was saying in 78, you could maybe be a Democrat or Republican Absolutely. and have the same view, right? Absolutely. How do we get to where it's like, no, 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 Democrats are with Satan. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that's a pretty big jump. And and frankly, to describe it that way, as you did, makes some more sense of some of my interactions with boomers that I have friendships with. Yeah, that yeah. Like they, sometimes they'll say things like, how can you vote for a Democrat? And it's sort oh, yeah. of like a devil, you know? Yes, that's right. I've and heard it's that. like, well, I want I actually want refugees to come here and I want yeah. to avoid climate catastrophe. That's kind of one way that I could vote for a democrat. You know, like uh but so what's the connective tissue there? With I mean, obviously you can't condense 50 years into two sentences, but No, no. Well, I mean, so a couple of things just again, personal family background and from a psychological standpoint, you would appreciate this. My dad was a union member democrat, right? Yeah. My mom was a lifer Republican. My mom, they were from a little village in northern Illinois. My dad was born in Detroit, lived in California. He moved to this little town in Illinois where my mom was when they were when he was in his late teens. And my mom rem- remembers the first time she ever saw a Democrat. This was 20 miles from Ronald Reagan's birthplace in Dixon, Illinois. Yeah. And, uh, and it was like, ooh, this family's moving here. They're Democrats. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh and and uh, my dad was a union guy. He voted Democrat, you know, for years and years and years and years. And so I'm growing up in a home where there's some pretty healthy political back and forth. But guess what? They loved each other. Yeah, they cared for each other. So there was never this thought that somebody who disagrees with you about an issue, whatever it is, is now the enemy in the gate. So no. So that was. So I, I grew up with that. So just the whole thing is preposterous to me. But but what what what's happened is in the 1990s, 80s and 90s, with the rise of the moral majority in particular and the way in which it interacted with the church, people who did not subscribe to the vision of social norms as outlined in a Republican Party platform were of necessity aligned with the an immoral form and that had to be darkness there could only be light and dark yeah i think that that's that supernatural angle that does a number on us psychologically that it reduces it to two sides uh, in a thing that might have been multi-hued beforehand that's right and if 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 the gop is putting forward a platform that does have certain issues which you go yeah i agree with that okay i get right. that i understand that and sure. if the democrat party is saying well actually we completely disagree i understand why you would say well then i can't vote for you so one of the things going on is there's a greater disparity taking place in, in around these cultural issues there wasn't widespread disagreement in the culture between democrats and republicans up until uh, say on something like gay marriage until i mean i could you could pull out statements by President Obama. Right. That you would say, well, he said this in 2008, and you would say, well, he's opposed to gay marriage. Oh, yeah. And that, which, if you didn't say who said this, you would go, well, I, I guess that was a some somebody running for Senate on the Republican ticket in Ohio or something. Yeah, that one so, shifted shifted fast, and shifted he, followed, fast. he followed the political winds in That's the way right. he spoke about it. It shifted very quickly, very yeah. dramatically. And, and so the shifts in these issues have been unsettling for people in the last 10 years. 
So if you feel like your entire moral universe, your entire moral world is under threat and being flipped upside down, then you are going to respond with either a certain degree of um, resigned capitulation or perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, very concentrated pushback. And I think we're experiencing both. Yeah, this is something where I think common liberal lenses miss something. So yeah. it's it's normal on the left to look at relationships between groups through either a power or yeah. privilege lens, right? Yeah. So looking at white conservatives and saying, what the hell are you guys so afraid of? You have had all the power and all the privilege, especially these men who are the most – freaked out, it seems, and yeah. the most willing to do extreme things in the name of preserving their the union as they see it. And I think there is truth to that. I think that it's true psychologically that if you have been in power, that equality feels like persecution to you. But the thing that those liberal lenses miss is this kind of moral panic that you're talking about, right. which is like the uh, conservatives are not necessarily motivated just by power and influence no. and stuff. They're also motivated by having a rightly ordered social structure and a rightly ordered moral structure into which the individual can slot. And that's a thing that liberals like myself don't care about all that much. I want freedom. I would like to have a little bit of free time every day to watch movies. That's what yeah. I want. But what <laughs> my in-laws want and I don't blame them for this. This is a different psychology. What they want is an ordered society that they know where they stand and they know what's good and what's up and down. And if yeah. that starts to flip, it's not that they're they're not angry about their privilege being taken away, although they might be also. But there's also this anger of like or this bewilderment, this this moral panic. There is. Yeah, that's right. And that's happened in the last eight to 10 years mm -hmm. and uh, in accelerating ways. So if you're in this massive acceleration, what Thomas Friedman calls this an age of accelerations in his great book, Thank You for Being Late. We experience this. It's very, we're looking for anchors. We're looking for, you know, solid object theory. Where can I find a spot to hold on to? And, and this won't change. Yes. So rather than finding that in the unchanging God, I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, right. you, 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 you're loved and you won't perish. We look for it in political institutions or political candidates or political parties or economic policies or whatever that leave us feeling like, okay, this, this, is, this is okay. I'm all right. And uh, instead of going, well, wait a minute, I'm part of an unshakable kingdom and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Why am I shocked by this? Right. And uh, now I have this responsibility, this, in fact, this opportunity in this world, which has suddenly emerged around me after this great earthquake has taken place, to love my neighbors, care, show the life of Christ in a whole new way, and uh, and do that. But but unfortunately, there's there's a much more combative approach to the to this new society than a serving approach to the society, which says we'll bear faithful witness. Right. James Davison Hunter's book on faithful presence is um, something that would be terribly helpful to a lot of conservative evangelicals just now in that regard we we do not have to go into this because i do not i don't i don't care to prosecute this issue with you i think that we probably differ for instance i assume on something like uh gay marriage i was in a pca church for 10 years so i understand the perspective there oh wow 
Yeah. Didn't know that. Grace Seattle here in Seattle. Okay. So I think that there are some issues where I actually think that God is calling conservatives to rethink things. But right. by I and large, you. I really agree. I, I What I'm trying to figure out, what I'm trying to understand is what are the missing links along the way that make someone who has – so I, I think that a naturally conservative person experiencing a kind of moral panic at the yeah. world flipping upside down, the yeah. experience of that, I am 100 percent – I try to be very empathized with that, basically. Yeah, if, they, what... if they were my client, I want to get in that pain, that bewilderment. Right. Let's sit with that. Let's see where it comes from. I don't have any judgment about that. Where I think we're missing links in the chain is maybe there has been insufficient moral formation. Maybe yeah. there's a question of vision, like you're talking about. Yeah. What do we look to? Um, yeah. And then I, I do think that I, I'm persuaded by your – argument that the supernatural and the apocalyptic, that these things, when those have coalesced together and yeah. play a bigger part in your worldview, they make these kind of demonizing the other side, these quick kind of conspiratorial claims so much quicker to come to mind. And then they well, do the, you know. They absolutely do because apocalypticism is light versus dark, whether we're talking Second Temple Judaism or contemporary evangelicalism. It's the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. Well, I I think there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, but that doesn't mean I can easily identify exactly where they don't necessarily map on to two political parties. Right, right, right. right. They don't. And in fact, the darkness was showing up in religious scenes as Jesus confronted it whether it's demons popping up in a synagogue or wherever. So what we fail to see in our church circles is how the darkness can become a power within us and how we appear then to our neighbors or our friends or colleagues or whatever as uh, looking for power rather than opportunities to serve and bear witness with kindness and love. I, I, I think the apocalypticism, the supernatural aspect is a very big deal. And um, if I'm with the light and I've mapped that in terms of politics, then the other people are, are the darkness. And then you end up with this really, really tragic view of people um, who could be great gifts in your life, a source of great joy in your life, yeah. deep friendships and deep partnerships that we could make for the common good. And, and right now, I think people can work hard to recover that and, and, and must. So there are uh, a handful of things in your tweet thread that we're going to have to skip over for time <laughs> because we've got a half hour and I want to talk about all five of these okay. alternate the, – the the treatment basically. So I'll I'll just say I will have a link to that tweet thread in the show notes. I really recommend you go through and read it. There's some interesting stuff about race. There's some interesting yep. stuff about communism and socialism. You know, There's just a few more uh, items that we didn't yep. have time for but – too too many interesting uh, rabbit trails here, David. That's fine. Uh, maybe we'll talk again some other time. But I hope so. that'd be fun. Let's get let's get through these five things. So you okay. have um, you have five of these items. Instead of this, we need to look to this one. And the first one is instead of errant apocalyptic fear based theology, which we have described pretty yep. well here. We don't need to go over that. Yep. This yep. needs to be replaced with resting in the present rule of Christ. What do you mean right. by that term? Okay, well, from a, a, an apocalyptic that says Christ is king now, right? Mm-hmm. And he reigns now, and that he is, he is uh, kind in that rule, not only in my heart, but over the cosmos, that he has a good plan for the world, 
and that he bestows graces in our world delivers us from an unnecessary or unhealthy fear of, of the darkness or evil and turns us towards a more great, being a more grateful people, approaching other people as image bearers of God and under his sovereign guidance and plan. And therefore, I can minister to them, I can serve them, I can work with them, and so on. I don't have to take the world's way of identifying people. This is how you think about these people, whatever that may be, whether I'm getting that from a, a news broadcast or some, some, somewhere else. And I could say, well, this is what God says about this person. This is what Christ the King says about this person. And then I approach them in that light. So Jesus is reigning now. I, I don't bring his kingdom. I announce his kingdom. There's not some political action I'm supposed to take to further his kingdom. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In Isaiah 9, it says, and it's the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes that, not my zeal. Zealotry has um, some good and bad connotations, as you know. Yeah. And so it's not political violence which extends the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is characterized by peace, and it's, it grows in peace. And we did not see peace in all the events that surrounded everything on January 6th. That's not a kingdom demonstration. No, it's not. It wasn't. Um, I mean, like a podcast host pickle here, because on the one hand, all that matters to me is that you articulate a theological vision that works for fellow evangelicals. And on the other hand, this podcast tends to represent like pretty different theological uh, views. And so I'm like, where do I go with that answer? (laughs) Like, we don't really have time to kind of go down the rabbit hole of, uh, you know, sovereignty and and all that stuff. Uh, just so you know, I, I'm coming from like an open and relational theological perspective. I understand that. Yeah, that's great. I, I understand that. It, but what I want to say to you is that I believe you're 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 gifted by God, and you, we're brothers, and we can walk together, and 100%. we can serve each we can serve yeah. each other, and serve together for the common good because we actually believe that Jesus is reigning. So we're okay. Uh, yeah. No. Totally. Um, it's just funny. Like it's it's a funny experience. It's kind of inside baseball, I guess. To to have a guest lay out a really robust theological answer that, in the interest of the episode, I should just skip over. <laughs> That's rare. That's usually where I dive in. Okay. Uh, but in this case, the, the pebbles or the the gold nuggets okay. I was diving for. Are different. That's all right. So that's great. Um, let's let's go to the second one. And this is something that actually a lot of, of people in my theological spheres talk about a lot, but I don't really understand very well. You call it the, the Constantinian myth of the conservative Christianized state. Yeah. And it, this is replaced by offering a, a wide embrace of political diversity, which, of course, I can, I can get in on. And I think we're expressing right now even theological diversity. Yeah. Um, but so what is this Constantinian myth of the Christianized state? Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Just very, very briefly, you have this sort of vision of a top-down uniformity. Oh, now, now we're getting into some open and relational stuff here, David. <laughs> top-down, you know, hegemony of God versus bottom-up invitation and lure of God. Now I'm okay. Now I'm cooking with <laughs> theological grease. <laughs> Jesus is believable and beautiful. We are. We certainly are drawn to him. By his yeah. mercy and love. But you're and, saying the, the Constantinian idea is like Constantine becomes a Christian and basically now the, the Christian church has political power of the greatest empire on earth at that moment. Or maybe it was tied with well, some dynasty yeah, in China. I mean, 
I don't, yeah. and again, I think some of this gets overplayed in certain places. And, you know, um, I mean, Dan Brown, uh, uh, you know, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, it gets very silly. Uh, yeah, yeah, it gets very silly. You know, yeah. people, people shouldn't get their church history from Dan Brown anymore. They should get their oceanography from SpongeBob. But, but the, but, but <laughs> I feel like you've used that one before. <laughs> but, 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 but the deal here is that people have this vision of, again, Constantine's after cultural uniformity. He wants to unify the empire. So the church becomes a service um, entity, a kind of utilitarian right, vehicle right. for his political aspiration. And so I don't believe the church should be in the position of, of um, uh, being in the name of its own peace the vehicle for political aspirations of worldly rulers. And it's interesting. We, I was just listening to a, a piece from the BBC in our time on the Spanish uh, Inquisition, and the Inquisition was also used that way yes. by by political rulers, kings and queens, to bring about political unity, which at that time in the Middle Ages meant religious unity. Correct. And so there's a long history of this yes. in Christianity of like, well, if we are all totally on the same page, then we can finally be unified and everything will go well. And That's you're right. kind of pushing against that. And Jesus pushes against that. He, we absolutely have to push against it because it inevitably leads to violence. Yeah. Violence in the name of religion is done by those who are after a political uniformity. Mm-hmm. and um, pushing back against opposing forces. So I'm going to, so that's why you'll end up with people in the name of Jesus, waving Jesus banners at the same time, throwing stuff at law enforcement officers and acting in all kinds of terrible ways. But anyway, that's, that's the postcard version of that. Gosh, we could explore, we could explore well, that. I know that's its own episode, but so yeah. talk about what that, you know, a wide embrace of political diversity. This is something that I don't always, as a more as a more liberal guy, I don't always succeed in this either. I don't sometimes want to embrace political <laughs> diversity to my right, uh, and I and I certainly don't want to embrace the diversity to my far left because they piss me off to no yeah. end. But how you know what's the vision for this? Well, I think I think here I think it's really uh, here. I'm very actually glad to be American. Hmm. I mean, honestly. I don't know that it's uniquely Christian, except in the sense of the sake, the sacredness of the conscience as the property of the individual. But I think I think there is, in very imperfect ways, we are after a more perfect union. I think we can talk together uh, as Americans about the liberty that we enjoy. One of my best friends back in Kentucky, a Jewish man, was never never shy about pointing out the fact that. If we all lived in Europe a couple of hundred years ago, we wouldn't be acting the way we're acting right now. There'd be a Jewish neighborhood, a Catholic area, a Protestant enclave or city, and we wouldn't ever meet. We wouldn't be together at Rotary or at the Mm. football game or something like that. One of the real blessings of this country is what you and I would think of as that kind of plurality and diversity. And I think as as Americans, we should say, well, thank God that's the case. It's actually been good for us all. And so um, I believe that uh, the church flourishes and humans flourish when liberty of conscience is allowed to be expressed. I love the First Amendment. I think (laughs) it's also a, it's a powerful antidote to the kind of supernatural overlay of us versus them, because once you know a Democrat— and and yeah. come to love them, then you can no longer ascribe things to all Democrats, yeah, you, you know, can't or Republicans for that matter. You know, and again, I mean, I, my dad and my mom lived that out. My family, I saw that. 
so I'm not going to, we can't demonize each other that way. It's just ridiculous. So third, we have replaced the Great Commission with Saving America. Yeah. So to, to connect this back to what we were saying, it's like our efforts now to, to the to the degree that our efforts are out of the actual mission field, however you want to construe that. And, and that might be another place where you and I have slightly different ideas. Uh, but whatever we think of that, being in the world, loving our neighbor, whether just depending on how we evangelize – to like, no, now our work is to Christianize America either to bring about Christian reconstruction or to avoid God's wrath with the coming judgment. Yeah, that's right. And so we're kind of getting off task. And you say we should replace that with getting back on task. We've buried the lead. Oh, that's a good way, David French way of putting it. Bring some well, journalism really, into really, it. Yeah. If you, let's, let's, let's you and I, let's you and I, you know, thought experiment, go to any major population center in the United States, urban center, wherever, yeah. and say, we're just going to go on the street. And I'm going to say a word. I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Here's the word evangelical. What's the response <laughs> people can give? Trump right, right now. Well, it's not right going to be, now. oh, yeah, those people who love Jesus so much and love their neighbors and they're always talking about the gospel. Yeah, those people. No, it's probably something else. Dave yeah. Kinnaman, in his book, Unchristian, ta- says that the number one thing that evangelicals are known for in the United States of America is hatred of gay people. Yep. Number one. Number one. That's I, bet it's, I bet it's probably Trump now and number two. would. Well, you know okay, I mean? yeah, his book was published a few years ago, but it's, yeah. that's an appalling thing. It's appalling. So, can, so what happens is rather than being the people who are known in the world for loving each other, caring for their neighbors, pro- proclaiming Christ – um, we're known for the wrong things, and we're off message, and we're off mission. Now, I don't believe in a reductionist vision of gospel proclamation that just is your own personal salvation that is has no bearing on any kind of responsibility Woo. for the wider community, because yeah. redemption has the entire cosmos as its focus. 100%. So, so I'm not a reductionist. That will make you happy. But at the same time, I do believe we have this responsibility to proclaim Jesus to people that we are sinners who need forgiveness. I did grow up Lutheran every Sunday here in the minister say, you're forgiven. And I thought, that's great. That's the best news I've ever heard because I sure need it. And so um, I'm glad for that good news. And and I do think we need to share that with people. But we're going to have to go a long way to regain the credibility we need, the trust bridges that have to be built so we can carry that news to people. Right now, people don't even want to hear us talk about that news because in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases, we don't have the credibility to share it. And I understand why. If I could add a 3A, it would be to start with an apology. The way that you actually did in this episode, that like there is an entire – population, let's call it roughly 50% of America, and these are mostly younger people, and there's a larger proportion of them that are not Christian, who are not going to listen to anything until uh, people that are associated with the last five years of all this stuff and and some stuff before that first say, you know what, forgive me for being a part of that. That was was the wrong move. Until then, they're just like, they're not listening to anything. No, they're not going to listen. And I don't blame them. And I go back further. I, I mean, again, I go back into the eight, like I was the only guy that they could get to come and pray with a guy who was dying of AIDS. Hmm. Okay. In my town. I mean, what, what, you know, first responders don't go, you know, when somebody shows up at a car wreck or somebody's had a heart attack, they don't run in the room going, well, what's your religion or what's your, what's your, what's your sexual identity here? They, they run in the room going, there's a problem. Let's get after it. 
Yeah. And, and we got to be running towards people, Boniface term, run to the roar. Let's go, let's, let's get after it. And that means loving people well. And yeah, we got a long way to go on this. It's, it's one reason um, why um, I refuse to sign the Nashville statement. Oh, it, bless you, David. I refuse. And here's why. I, I said, why, <laughs> Wait, why we need to explain. It? Some people are going to forget what that was. This is a couple years ago. Will you yeah, yeah. A, so we, but I just said, no, here's the problem. It doesn't open with an apology. It doesn't mm-hmm. begin with repentance. Number one thesis in Luther's 95 is this. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We begin, we go through, we're living in repentance. I got to lead with repentance. And if you want to take, if the church wants to take a stand on traditional Christian morality, okay. But could we start with our own failures to do so? And could we start with the way in which we've treated people who don't hold to those? Could we start with our own repentance, please? But no. Yeah, it makes me think of, I can't remember his name, but a an African-American pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention who recently publicly left, and he his his uh, soundbite was, it took the Southern Baptist Convention 400 years to denounce slavery and one year to denounce critical race theory. I'm yeah. out. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I'm out. Like, I'm not welcome here. Yeah, and just, you don't blame him for that. You know? I, I understand. So we got a, we got a lot, of, we got repentance to do. So I, I'll take your 3A and. Uh, the the Nashville statement for anybody who doesn't know was a it was signed by a bunch of conservative folks like a lot of gospel coalition types and others and it was like a kind of a manifesto about human sexuality and and God's will for sexuality you could look it up okay uh, fourth we have been exalting false patriotism as true spirituality yeah um, so we so we replace that seeking to serve rather than to reign yeah. So I think I'm patriotic. Uh, me too. Yeah. I love my country. I can't I sing. Love I love America. I love, love it. I love the United States of America. I'm very thankful to be an American. My mother-in-law is a Cuban immigrant. My brother-in-law is from Iran. I love this country. I, I, I grew up believing the myth of open doors for this country. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I've lived overseas and I've been in over 40 different countries. And we we um, have our own tattered problems and sins, and they're great. Yeah. But I still love this country. So I was very careful there to say false patriotism, right. which is, I think, a buying into a mythology of a, a kind of exceptionalism, which is unwarranted, and then defining that as spirituality, that America is the kingdom of God, and it is the city set on a hill. Uh, you know, if you go back and listen to Ronald Reagan's farewell address when he said, you know, I don't think I ever really t- told you what I meant by city set on a hill, quoting, of course, earlier Puritans. But and he talked about it being this place where where people who had a dream could come to a place where people were welcome to pe- where people were included. I love that about this country. Yeah. And um, I thank God for it. And uh, I don't think patriotism is revealed by xenophobic, racist closed doors that exclude. I don't believe that's patriotic at all. And um, I don't believe it's uh, patriotic to be so arrogant about blessings that we've received that we think other countries are shithole countries. And that's the way we refer to them. Yeah. Um, so no, we should be, if whatever, whatever we've freely been given by God, if, if, if indeed it's a, uh, we want to use terms like that in our, public discourse and talk about a, a, a good providence, which has bestowed great blessing on this country, then to whom much is given, much is required. 
Yep. And we have a great role in this world for good. We can. We often have fallen short of that. But we can't replace or we must not replace. It's insane uh, that we that went from good with its false patriotism and nationalism. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane that we went from George W. Bush, who's, you know, obviously got embroiled in some wars, uh, probably yeah. mistakenly, but also he wars are tough, too. I mean, you know, yeah. Who, yeah. Uh, who knows if Clinton yeah. or Obama, you know, it's hard to say. But he also, you know, a guy I disagree with on a lot of things. He spearheaded the largest global aid movement and reduction in poverty right. in human history. That's right. And one GOP president later dropped refugees to zero. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's f-ing unbelievable that so, uh, there was eight years in between them and the same party. A, yeah. Then there's a big yeah, – it's a separate thing, but there's a whole struggle, of course, going on for the soul of the Republican Party. And uh, I'm an independent. I'm not – Neither Democrat nor Republican. I'm not saying that like it's like I'm superior. I'm just yeah. As a pastor, I just don't identify. I don't think it's helpful to people, but uh, and I don't endorse candidates uh, at all ever. But what I I do know is from many Republican friends, many here in this area, is there's a there's a there's a big struggle on for the soul of that. Mm-hmm. We'll see where it goes, but uh, yeah, it's not looking good right now. But we you got, know, we have. I, I, I'm glad that communism, Marxist, Leninist governments in Eastern Europe collapsed. Yeah, I'm glad that there's greater human liberty there. I'm glad for that. I believe fascism needed to be defeated. Uh, yeah, and I'm worried about the military taking over in Myanmar. I mean, like, right. I want democracy. I, I yeah. want people to yeah. have autonomy. So we have we have time for this last one here. Yeah, and we didn't get into this very much, so maybe we can spend a few more minutes on it. You said it's seeking influence in the culture through levers of power. That's what we have been doing, and we could replace that by disavowing celebrity-driven culture of public protest Christianity. And I think of Sean Foyt, if I'm pronouncing his name right. We get rid of that, and and instead we have worshiping communities of humility led by faithful servants. I want to talk a little bit about this celebrity-driven culture of public protest Christianity. What a phrase, David. First of all, just props for that, those six words. So what is describe a little bit of that to me? Well, here um I think some of my Wendell Berry-ishness comes out and it's that humble communities of people that care for each other in localities and don't have pretensions to grandeur yeah. or delusions of it who are faithful in little things actually accomplish far more good and far more effective Christian witness, as far as that goes, not to mention just the common good, than the this kind of uh, light show approach to Christianity, where if we can get an event big enough and a star big enough to show up, then we can draw attention to a cause, and and that's going to be the thing that yeah. really moves moves the dial. I don't it believe- raises money. That's true. Well, that's a different issue. I mean, right. I live in the middle of the evangelical industrial complex here, and yeah, Franklin so. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm all for people being as prosperous as they can be. That's fine. But we both know that if the whole raison d'etre of what Christian ministry is about is simply bringing in money, that that is a corrupt approach and it is destined to fail and fall and great will be its fall. And it happens all the time. <laughs> and, so and it's happening right now. Yeah, it, it is. And what do you think the relationship is between that celebrity culture within the church Mm-hmm. Like, how much do you think that set the stage 
for a reality television show host to become beloved by millions of evangelicals? Well, I don't, I don't know that it's so much in the churches that did that as the wider culture. I think. Well, yeah, an- sorry, what I mean is obviously American celebrity culture is yeah. more comes from media and Hollywood yeah. and stuff like that than it does yeah. from. Or like the Rockefellers of their day, you know, we, That's we've, right. we've, uh, American culture has, and probably all cultures to the extent that they could have been fascinated by celebrities forever, sure. but that obviously has slipped into the the mainstream evangelical church in a way that you're talking about. I'm wondering what you think, how much of a well, role you think that played. It, it's been industrialized mm. right? and monetized in that way. So yeah. And there are uniquely gifted communicators, of course. There always Obviously, have been. Yeah. Carl Spurgeon. I'm or- trying to be one. <laughs> that's right. I'm trying to so, be a uniquely so gifted communicator. Want, that's right. We want great communicators to be out there and so yeah, on. We do, their doing work. their work. Yeah. We want. That's right. And they help us. Thank God for that. So yeah. that should. So, so what, but what happens is that it sort of crosses a line into now I haven't, you know, here's my agent. Here's what I require in terms of fees. And we become not a person, but an industry. And that's, I think, a very dangerous place to be, where you're no longer really living in a community with people who are aware of your sins and failures and how you walk together as family and so on. I do, I want to say, I see Christians around this around Nashville repudiating that, going the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. who I count as cherished friends, and they live this out. They live out the, we're not going the celebrity route. We're going to be artists, and we're going to give our gifts to people, but in ways, in, in faithful ministry, that is a blessing. It isn't part of just the complex. Somebody like Andrew Peterson is a great example of that. Andy Gullihorn, one of the people who works with him and his that community of, of people, uh, the Rabbit Room community recently was featured on a news story that just went viral these last couple of days with the high five, you know, friendship thing. I don't know oh, if you've I seen that. Or not. I think I've seen that now. It's tremendous. Yeah. Check that out. But, but in other words, we can, we do not have to have that kind of status. We can have a lowliness, a humility that says we're here to serve people, care for people. We're going to be faithful to use whatever gifts we have and whatever avenues are open to us, whether it's broadcast or print or some other way to help people but we're not going to put ourselves at the center of things. And we're not going to say that by putting on some big show in public, which the Sermon on the Mount has some pretty strong things to say about. Okay. This is one of the things we skipped over. Maybe we can just do two minutes on it that you were saying, like, there's an irony and and it really, it it stuck out to me because of the way I was raised. Basically by the nineties, it was seen as totally normal to hold public prayer services, to use megaphones to pray over stadium or beach crowds. My youth group didn't engage in these things, but I never heard those people criticized. It was always like, well, some people get saved that way. So I guess we should have TBN. And I get, you know, it's like we, it was always ends justify the means if there was any criticism of that (laughs) stuff. And then (laughs) your simple statement, like the Sermon on the Mount says, don't pray in public. Close the door to your closet. Yeah. That was a little bit of a head blow moment for me. Yeah. Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the reaction. What's happened is some conservative Christians feel that the secularizers want to push Christianity out of the public square. 
Right. You are not allowed to own your faith in the public square, or you can't be a Christian and be in the academy and so on. Uh, so whether it's the academy, public square, politics, whatever it is, there's there's there has been in the last uh, 20, 30 years that sense that we're being pushed out. So people kind of had this reaction, like, well, we'll go uber public. Right. You know, we're, we're here and we're demonstrating just like you, that kind of thing. Actually, I think that's the incorrect response. I think the the there's a different way of responding than that, but I understand why people have done it. There is legitimate pressure that people feel to be quiet about mm-hmm. their faith and uh, not to speak up. But Christians, of course, need to learn to speak in helpful ways, not unhelpful ways. And we need to make sure that prayer does not appear to be something which is just a self-righteous demonstration, which is really political. It's a pushback against people rather than a crying out to God. And again, if you equate the nation with Israel, which is political national, it's this Christian nationalism thing, then all these big public prayer gatherings, well, it's like Israel. They all gathered around to pray. Yeah. Well, well, you know, no, that's not the same thing. That's, that's an you're but you're, you're creating a connection there that isn't really where it's at. So it's problematic. I do. We we don't have to go into this, but I think there's another explanatory layer there about Trump, which is that he is such a brazen version of like, you don't think I'm allowed in these spaces. I'm like a New York guy who doesn't talk the right game and I say what I want and I'll be president like you. It's that kind of like you say we can't be in these spaces. This guy is in the ultimate holy of holies that he's not supposed to be in. And there is some identification with that, like a Sean Foyt or whatever, doing his thing, being in the, in Portland, you know, right in front of all the liberals or whatever. It's, it is there's, there's something there. There's, there's a bit of that. I think, I think certainly some people saw in president Trump, a champion who would represent them in some way. And uh, I understand why they, I understand that psychologically why they felt that way. And that's across. That's even in a wider sociological constituency than, say, the Christian scene. Right. But um, I think as Christians, we do not want to be the people who are taking an us versus them posture in the world, and uh, we want to be in the world to announce and live before it who Christ is. Always saying we do it imperfectly. I open with an apology with repentance. Let me close it with saying I'm going to do this very imperfectly. And I'm still learning. I'm trying hard to learn how to be a, a, a faithful Christian. And so I, I, I'm really asking for help in the journey and how we do this as churches and individuals. Very masterful managing of the clock there, <laughs> like a true pastoral professional. I would, I would ask for one piece of advice for us before I let you go here. Okay. I think a lot of people listening to this, like myself, have been really heartened by your apologetic and open stance as a white evangelical baby boomer. And we have white evangelical baby boomers in our lives that we wish were more like that. So many of us do. And we genuinely want to stay in relationship with them. Yes. But but it's a hard time for that. And some of them are being very bullheaded right now. What is – like speaking as someone from that population – can you give us an idea of what to appeal to in the in your peers that like, you know, obviously we can't change them overnight. It's not our job to change right. them. That's but right. like 
what's what might be a good way to start that conversation that you think might go better than some other ways we might be tempted to start things? Yeah. Well, first of all, love your family. Just love them. That's 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 number one. Love them. Care for them. Show them affection, whether they return it or not. And sometimes they won't. But we all have that dynamic in our families. But number two, number two, ask them if they're Christians, what do you see God doing in the bigger world? Hmm. Ask them to start thinking with you about what do you see God doing in Syria? What do you see God doing in Nigeria? What do you see God doing? Have you read any articles recently about the church in China and what it's going through? Have, ask them to start thinking about that. What do you hear about the Lord doing in these other places? And engage them at that level and talk about how big God's kingdom is and how big God's family is and help them to start thinking along those lines. It just begins to lift it out of the merely national parochial and out of the political and into that wider vision. Fantastic. David, thanks so much for your time, man. Dan, thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was really fun. In the show notes, I've got a link to David's tweet thread. You could also follow him on there. I'd recommend following him if you're on Twitter. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke to join the Patreon group. And my Instagram and Twitter handles are also in the show notes, as well as SoYou'reDeconstructing.com, the website that my friend Sari and I put together that collates a bunch of deconstruction and reconstruction faith resources in one place. Check all that out if you'd like. See you guys next week. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.